This is the Spring Research Project podcast where we talk about community sponsorship of refugees. My name is Eliza Bateman and I am Head of Research at the University of Ottawa Refugee Hub. And I'm Tiumir Sabchev, Postdoctoral Fellow at the Refugee Hub. Welcome back to the Spring Research Project podcast series. If you have listened to our previous episodes, you already know that the Canadian Private Sponsorship of Refugees program has quite a few unique characteristics. For example, the long-standing involvement of religious organizations in refugee sponsorship or the possibility for naming the refugees that one wants to sponsor. Today, we are going to discuss another quite unique element of the Canadian sponsorship model, namely the pre-arrival communication between sponsors and sponsored refugee newcomers. In most sponsorship programs, the first contact between sponsors and sponsored refugees is when newcomers arrive, for example, at the airport or at their new home. In Canada, however, it is quite common that sponsors and sponsored refugees communicate extensively before the moment of arrival. This communication may have a lot of benefits and in some cases, pre-arrival contact may even prove crucial for the success of the sponsorship. But that's enough from me. We have invited a real expert on this topic for today's discussion, and I'm now giving the floor to my co-host, Eliza, who will introduce him to you. Thanks, Theo. I'm very pleased today to present Dr. Christopher Kyriakides. He holds the Canada Research Chair in Citizenship, Social Justice and Ethno-Racialization at York University in Canada. He's an executive member of the Centre for Refugee Studies at York University, a former research fellow of the Centre for Research in Racism, Ethnicity and Nationalism, University of Glasgow, and the Centre for the Study of Ethnicity and Citizenship, University of Bristol. His work in refugee and immigrant host relations focuses on the interplay between racism, nationalism, ethnic conflict and refugee reception. His work has global reach, having conducted research pertaining to the UK, Europe, the Eastern Mediterranean, the Middle East and North American refugee reception contexts. It's lovely to have you with us today, Chris. It's lovely to be here. Thank you very much for joining us, Chris. It seems to me that you are one of a very few scholars that have studied the pre-arrival contact between sponsors and sponsored refugees and its impact on resettlement success. So I wanted first to ask you, can you tell me when and why actually did you become interested in this topic? Well, that's a good question because initially I wasn't interested in this question. Initially, I had no conceptualization of pre-arrival communication. Uh, so I should give you a little bit of background as to the research that we conducted that made that that ex- an explicit became in which it became an explicit focus. So I arrived in Canada in 2016 to establish a multi-country program on refugee reception, and I was taken aback by a couple of things. First of, of all, at that time, at the end of 2015, um, early 2016, um, the Syrian refugee crisis, what are called the Syrian refugee crisis, had become uh, very pro- uh, prominent. Uh, in terms of it becoming a global media kind of uh, spectacle. And the Canadian government, through the Social Science and Humanities Research Council, had a 
issued a call for targeted research to look at impact immediate impacts of Syrian refugee reception in Canada. And I thought, well, let's we'll apply for this. And I started to look at what was called the private sponsorship scheme, which I had never actually heard of. So let's put our cards on the table. Before I came to Canada in 2016, I'd never heard of this scheme. And I started looking at it, and I thought, God, this is really interesting, you know. And I was thinking, well, if we look at private sponsorship, then that gives us the possibility of looking at what might be thought of as two sides within refugee host relations. And I started thinking about that, and we started doing this research, initially looking at resettlement success, yeah, as a broad kind of concept, interviewing uh, sponsored refugees and sponsored groups together uh, in interaction, it really dawned on me that in the 15 to 20 years I've been looking at issues around refugees and immigrants and, and race and racism, and, and ostensibly looking at refugee-host relations or refugee and immigrant-host relations, I'd never actually come across a refugee-host relation. And when you think about it, what is, what is a refugee-host relation? How would you study a refugee-host relation? You can't really. You can study things like media responses. You can interview people to gather their experiences of, of being a refugee. You can canvas folks in host societies about their views. You can look at experiences of living in camps. But they're not really relations. It's not a refugee-host relation. And as we started doing this work, I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, I've never studied a refugee host relation till now. So one of the, the great benefits, right, indirect benefits, I think, of the private sponsorship scheme, and we have to thank the Canadian government for this, but not from the perspective of being a policy researcher, because I'm not, I don't set out to study, you know, the effectiveness of policy. One of the great benefits uh, to my work, and I think to all of us of a private sponsorship scheme is it provides the opportunity to actually study a refugee-host relationship in the micro context. Sponsored refugees in their first 12 months of resettlement in Canada are living in close proximity to this host sponsor group. Some of, sometimes they're living in the same house, at least for a period of time, yeah? They're living close by. Their relationships, their, their um, fi finances, their schooling, education, housing are all interweaved within this kind of sponsor-sponsored relationship. And as we started to look at this and interview both sponsors and sponsored, we found something really, really interesting, and it's not something that I'd come across before. And so, on the one hand, yeah, the private sponsorship scheme is, is a great boon to researchers. On the other hand, it provided the possibility for generating and developing knowledge and insights that I believe were quite unique. At least I feel I learned more from doing two small pieces of research on sponsorship than I'd really learned in the past 15 years in terms of looking at refugee host relations. And so we did this and we, we began, we took a grounded approach uh, we were looking at the concept of resettlement success, and we began from the idea, well, success is multidimensional, right? Sponsors are going to have one idea of what resettlement success is. 
sponsored refugees will have a different idea of what resettlement success is, and policymakers will have another idea of what resettlement success is. So let's have a look. What do they mean by that? And that's what we, we, we set out to do, to look at what is successful resettlement from the perspective of sponsors and sponsored refugees. So that's the setting. And out of that, you know, we developed a whole new, we had to develop a whole new framework for understanding what was going on. Pre-arrival communication or contact became one of the elements uh, that we went on to look at because we were pushed towards doing it. And I, I noticed that Tiho had mentioned that pre-arrival communication is something that happens a lot based looking at the Canadian uh, model. But I'm not really sure that anybody had ever made that point, right, uh, before or had ever even been looked at, right? So um, pre-arrival information has been looked at, pre-arrival, the exchange of information, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, how how information about the host society affects people before they come and how information about the refugee groups affects the hosts before they come. These things have been looked at. But pre-arrival communication is something very, very different. And it came out of the research that we did. Uh, and to get a kind of an idea of the significance of pre-arrival communication, it's important to look at the wider gamut of the relationship, interactive relationship between sponsors and sponsors that came out, which was the real sort of basis of, of the knowledge that we, we were able to generate through that, that work. So that's really the background there. I'm not sure if that answers your question. No, I think you, you answered Theo's question brilliantly. I don't want to speak for him, but I think, you, but actually you brilliantly segued into my question, Chris. Um, and my question is, you know, can we get, talk a little bit about you know, this, what you discovered in terms of pre-arrival contact and communication. Um, you know, in the introduction, Tio suggested that, like, you know, we talk about it in terms of facilitating resettlement success, and I know that that's a really loaded term, but could you tell us a little bit about what you found in your research about how it facilitated certain outcomes and why it was so important to the sponsored newcomers and the sponsors? Well, that's a great question. A great couple of questions. But again... In order to draw out and to provide the best answers to those questions, it's important to situate that within the sort of the, the, the wider and sort of deeper dynamic that we were able to kind of like, that we had to kind of like try and understand the emerged out of this interactive relationship between sponsors and sponsors. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you some of that first, and then if, you, if I may and then come on to answer questions that are directly related to pre-arrival communication, because the latter needs the former in order to kind of inform it, you know. Here's an example. We've changed the names of the participants involved, so this is anonymised. A 46-year-old woman from Aleppo arrives at Pearson Airport uh, with her family, and she meets her sponsors for the first time. No pre-arrival communication. She's describing the narrative of her arrival. And she says, you know, we met the sponsors, they were lovely, they were very nice, very nice to us. And we got in the cars and they drove us to our accommodation. We didn't know where we were going, we arrived at this house. And I saw the house and my first internal impression was, oh, I don't like that. And I could feel myself, this is her, I could feel myself saying, oh, that's really ungrateful. Because I didn't say anything. And they took me into the house and I looked at the furniture and I said, 
Oh, I really don't like this furniture. And I, I, I was catching myself and I was thinking, this is hard talking, I was thinking, what are, you, what are you saying, you know? These people have gone to all these efforts. And they took me upstairs to the bedroom and I saw the bed and the sheets in the bed were dirty and that was it and I couldn't hold it in any longer and I grabbed the sheets and I said, we cannot sleep on these bed sheets. And I pulled the sheets off the bed, she says. And of course the sponsors were mortified, right? Oh no, what's going on? Oh, what we've done, you know? Because you know, people go to great efforts to you know, try and facilitate uh, supports, you know, create, create supports for people coming. And she was explaining it to us and she said, you know, look, I'm very, I'm very grateful. I always try to think like a refugee, but I don't know how. Which is a very curious statement, yeah. But for us, and going into that more depth, what Rasha was saying was this. My life didn't begin when I arrived in Canada. My life didn't begin when the conflict started in Syria. I'm a 46-year-old woman. I had a life before the conflict. I had a lovely house. Uh, it was always spotless. It was a pillar in the community. I would have coffee mornings, women would come, we'd have meetings, we'd have political discussions, etc., etc. You know, if anyone ever came to stay at our house overnight, they knew they were going to have crisp, clean sheets. And what she was saying was this, is that my life didn't begin when I arrived in Canada. I have a life of 46 years. And I aspire to having a life beyond uh, refuge. So while I'm very grateful, I don't know how to be what it is they need me to be in order to be a refugee. For many, many years, I wasn't one. And this really is the crux of the matter. So in refugee studies, there's scholars who look at something called refugeeness, you know, which is something we look at. Uh, and refugeeness really it connotes, you know, the sort of the lived experience of, of living as a refugee in a particular place, but it also connotes two kind of dimensions of that experience. The, the one is that gaining refugee status has existential utility. It saves lives, right? You know, refugee status saves lives. So to, get, to be a refugee, to get that refugee status, it's considered to be a good thing. People want it. But it can come with conditions. And when you look at something like what was called the Syrian refugee crisis, you get a, a, an idea of what those conditions are. When people think of a refugee, they think of conflict. When they think uh, of a refugee, they think of people in dire straits, people who are persecuted, etc., etc., etc. They don't think of people with lives prior to that. And that could become a constraining set or of discourses around reception, what we call rece refugee reception discourses, yeah? Uh, and in a sense, when, you know, when a country decides or when a prime minister decides that they're going to do something to support refugees in a particular context, and they say, right, Canadian side society is ready to welcome Syrian refugees, it really sets up a sense in which the people who are coming are thought of as being to a certain extent, reduced to the objectified status of being a refugee, right? As in having no life prior, having no history prior to being a refugee. Uh, a certain infantilization can occur where there's a, a sort of a rescue element, you know, the logics of rescue where Canadian society is rescuing, you know, people who have been subjected to, to um, 
the conditions of displacement, for example. And it can set up a sort of polarity between host and refugee, whereby the host society becomes the sort of rescuing figure, and the refugee becomes this kind of object of rescue. And so what Russia was saying is this, I'm very grateful for the refugee status, but you didn't save me. Canadian society didn't save me. I had a life. And when we negotiated displacement, we went through that. We made decisions as a family. And those decisions were informed by my pre-displacement life. I was a mother. I was a spouse. I was a sister. I was an auntie. I had a job. I had a degree, etc., etc., etc. All these elements of my pre-conflict life informed how I negotiated uh, what some refugees, and that's they called a journey of death, a voyage of death. We saved ourselves. We're grateful to Canadian society, but you didn't save us. We're not objects of rescue, and we had a life, you know, prior to coming to Canada. So when she's saying, I tried to think like a refugee, but I don't know how, she's saying, my life doesn't permit me to fall into that category very easily. And this came across time and time again, that where sponsors recognised pre-arrival lives, where they recognised pre-history, and particularly social roles, mother, father, breadwinner, uncle, etc., etc., these social roles, it had an impact, a positive impact. Because these social roles reflected the pre-conflict lives. And it was in the interactive relationship between sponsors and sponsored, you could see that how that happened, right? There were various outcomes. Some sponsors didn't begin with that idea that we were, you know, we we're kind of rescuing people. They were aware of that dynamic and went out of the way not to do it. Some did it and received negative responses and changed their approach. Yeah, Some groups collapsed. And if you read some of the papers we published, you'll see how a couple of groups, sponsor groups, actually collapsed when being faced by that dynamic. People fought back, they resisted. Uh, some then reoriented themselves and changed their approach. And that really became a microcosm of, for us of refugee relations, refugee host relations in the Canadian context. Yeah, And you think about it, sponsors are operationalizing that policy. But sponsored refugees are operationalizing that policy. And together they're defining successful resettlement on their own terms interactively. The policy is there as a framework, but the policy doesn't make the meaning of the policy. The meaning of the policy is made by the people who are engaging that policy. Yeah. So we notice then. To come back to your point about pre-arrival contract, contact, we thought there's a couple of outcomes. There's two different outcomes going on we've noticed here. Some are saying we love Canada. We love our sponsorship. The family, we're like family. You know, we don't want to leave. And our initial study was in a rural context. And we went on to do another study in an urban context. So looking at that rural context, we love it. We never want to leave this part. We want to stay in this, this rural context. We want to stay here, you know, sparsely populated, near our sponsors. We're happy to stay here. 
Others would say, we really hate it. We really, really hate it. We can't wait to get away from where we're at. It's been a nightmare. And then, of course, you had a sort of gradations of that in between. I'm presenting two extreme sides in order to make uh, to to illustrate the point. Of course, there's it webs and flows, you know, and there's like there's movements within that. And generally, it was the case that people were really, you know, they believed that it had been successful, but on their terms, right? And the, the the terms of success that they set out were what we had gone set out to kind of study. And the terms of success were when there's pre-arrival social roles were not confined by the obligations of refugeeness, that you're an object of rescue, that you have no life prior to arrival in Canada, that we are somehow uh, Western saviors of refugees. We set out to look at these two polarities and then we worked our way in to the grey areas and we noticed that the ones who were saying, we love it here, we're much more likely to have engaged in pre-arrival communication. I thought, well, why is that? And we looked for work in this, and there's no work. There was no work done in this. We thought, what, what, why is that? And we looked at it, and we went on to study it again. We did a second study to test this. You know, we looked at an urban context, and it was the same. Differences between rural and urban in terms of private sponsorship, uh, which we've, we've done work on. But the, in terms of pre-arrival communication, it was very similar. So here's an example to illustrate why pre-arrival communication seemed to have this effect. We were speaking to a family, a a man, and he was saying, yeah, before we came, we would Skype. And we couldn't really speak English, and they couldn't speak Arabic, and sometimes they had an interpreter, and sometimes they didn't. And we were talking about communicating. We'd been in Lebanon for a number of months waiting to come and that's another thing to consider with private sponsorship is the waiting time for people actually being able to leave where they are provides, actually provides, inadvertently provides that possibility and necessity of pre-arrival communication. Because the sponsors are getting frustrated. They're in Canada, they're getting frustrated. They've got this family, they want them to come. They've done all the preparation. Well, that waiting time gets gets in the way of that happening. And so inevitably, some of them will engage in pre-arrival communication. And communic- they'll reach out. You know, the people in Lebanon will reach out and say, what's happening? And they'll say, oh, and it it can become a thing where from week to week they engage in communication. So here's an example. And we actually, we interviewed the sponsor group and the people who were sponsored, the refugees who were sponsored. And we got the same, basically the same story, but from different different perspectives. And so the, the guy was saying, you know, we called them. It was a Sunday afternoon. We called them. We just thought, we'll just give them a call. And they were talking away, and the sponsor, one of the guys from the sponsor group, says, you know, everything's ready. We, we're we going to go out and buy sheets. So here's another sheet. Sheets figured prominently, you know. Bed. <laughs> Bedding figured quite prominently in responses. Um, we're going to go out and buy sheets for you, your wife, and, the, and your kids. What colour do you like? What colour of sheets do you like? And... We, the guy's saying, this nearly made me start. I started to cry. And I thought, and I was just was saying, why? Why, how did, why did it have this effect? It's because they recognised that, that I'm a human being. They recognised that these are the things that, I, that concern me. 
And when I've lectured on this to various audiences, I've said, well, you know, look, you know, I have two two little kids, a, you know, a boy and a girl. And one of the decisions that we, we, we were always faced with is, you know, when they were younger, what, what would you like, a Spider-Man bed or a Superman bed, you know, or whatever. And these are the kind of banal, seemingly banal uh, decisions that parents make on a daily basis, right? That we, we just take it for granted. And what he's saying to me is like, you know, it's been a long time since I could take that for granted. And this sparked a sense of recognition. And as he was saying, they recognise me as having the social role of father prior to the conflict. They recognised, and this came across all the time, it was always the social pre-arrival, pre-conflict social roles, the things, the roles that people adopt in their everyday lives that make them who they are, which give them status, right? A sense of status within the society in which they've come. And if you think about it, refugee is a status. And refugeeness bridges the status between refugee and the social status roles that people occupied prior to coming. So in countering the negative elements of refugeeness, pre-arrival contact enabled uh, recognition of pre-arrival, pre-conflict statuses, which is what people aspire to re-achieving on resettlement. That's what people say, isn't it? I want the life that I lost. They know that it's not going to happen, but those social roles are guiding. It's like a map. Why is it a map? Not only were they significant prior to the conflict, they were significant during the during the conflict. They informed decisions during the conflict. Here's an example. One guy says to us, so the conflict started and it got really bad and I decided I had to go to Lebanon. So I went to Lebanon. I found a very small apartment. I got myself a job in construction. I came back to Syria and I got my wife and kids and we went. I took them to Lebanon. So what he's saying there is this. My social role as father, a spouse, as breadwinner, all informed my decisions, which allowed me to confirm my existence against the threat to my to mortal the, the mortal threat of you know uh, of a conflict. Yeah, and we conceptualised conflict here as being disconfirming forces, and these disconfirming forces were contested through confirmation of one's eligibility to exist and authority to act as a father, as a mother, etc., etc. So social roles became the, the, the means through which, pre-conflict social roles became the means through which people made decisions which saved their own lives. And that's why we refer to people in these studies as persons of self-rescue. Persons of self-rescue. They confirmed their eligibility to exist and their authority to act against the disconfirming forces of conflict. And in the Canadian context, against the disconfirming elements of refugeeness. And those status rules provided a narrative, a line of continuity, biographical continuity, which informed their existential claims, you know, uh, their future claims, what I want for the future. So that's that was the framework that came out of it. Coming back to pre-arrival communication, there's an additional part. So if you think about it then, pre-arrival communication, 
They're meeting and they're talking and they're exchanging information. That information isn't just information. It becomes knowledge. Uh, how does it become knowledge? So when people are about to leave a place and come to a new place that they know nothing about, right, there's a lot of uncertainty. What we're going to find there. And one of the key elements within displacement has been found by other scholars' important work on uncertainty during displacement, yeah, and the exile, is that you know uncertainty is is the whole one of the hallmarks of displacement. I'm not certain I'm going to be alive tomorrow, right? Uncertainty is very key. But uncertainty and certainty are crucial to something else, and that is the building of trust. So you think about it, when we meet, if you and I meet, if the three of us met, you don't know anything about me, you have no reason to trust me. I could say a lot of things about me. I could tell you how good I am, how nice I am, blah, blah, blah. But as informed people with life experience, you're not just going, okay, we're going to trust him, right? Trust doesn't emerge just because someone says, I'm a nice person, nor should it, uh, <laughs> you know? But trust is built through the reduction of uncertainty. As you become more certain of who I am, you, you develop through time, through experience, uh, an idea of who I am, uh, and I develop an idea of who you are through communication and stuff. We have the capacity for me becoming more certain about who you are and you becoming more certain about who I am. And that reduction in uncertainty is, becomes part of the establishment of trust. Now, that's a very superficial, it's kind of a superficial description. If you think about it in terms of what we discussed earlier about social roles and the recognition of pre-arrival social roles, when they're saying, what kind of sheets do you like? And he says, well, me and my wife will take anything, but my daughters want pink. Yeah? And it becomes a thing. And they go out and they buy the pink sheets and they show them the pink sheets. Yeah? And they go, oh, the uncertainty begins to diminish gradually over time. A greater degree of certainty becomes established. And they begin to trust each other in terms of the exchange of information. And that exchange of, isn't an exchange of information. It becomes knowledge. It becomes co-created. It's co-created knowledge. It's a co-created understanding of what to expect. A, what they should expect when they come to Canada, and B, what the sponsors will expect when they arrive. It's co-created knowledge. Uh, and that's why we call the resettlement, a resettlement knowledge asset because it's established on the basis of redu the reduction of uncertainty, yeah, and the concomitant increase in trust, so that when they come to Canada, it becomes an asset. That's resettlement knowledge becomes an asset. And that asset, that element, that dimension of it being knowledge being an asset, helped us to explain why it was that some said, we love it here, we never want to leave, and why it is that some said, we hate it here, we wish we hadn't ever come. Resettlement knowledge assets established through pre-arrival communication are based on the reduction of uncertainty, yeah, 
an expansion of trust, a deepening of trust, premised on the recognition of pre-conflict lives, pre-conflict social roles. And why are they so important? Because it's particularly those social roles that are denied through the reductive elements of refugeeness when people are thought of as having no history, no life as being objects of rescue. So when people say, we rescued ourselves, um, I went to Lebanon, I got, my, I got a wee house, I got a, a job, I went back, got the wife, got the kids, etc., etc. All my pre-conflict social roles helped me to enact self-confirmation that we, we, a we of self-rescue as a family and myself as a person of self-rescue. And that's why when I try to act like a refugee, sometimes I don't know how. So can you see how that pre-arrival communication came out of those sort of Sort of the deeper knowledge that came out of the, that was developed from those two studies, yeah. It wasn't the primary focus, but it became something, you know. It alerted us to something that I had no knowledge of prior to that. And while I think a lot of folks knew that sponsor groups engaged in peer rival communication, I don't think it had really been thought of as anything particularly significant. And I think that one of the reasons why we were able to develop a sense of a significance is because we interviewed both sponsors and sponsored. Uh, we saw how it worked between. There's so much work, great work done on sponsorship that looks at the experiences of privately sponsored refugees or looks at the experiences of private sponsors. But very few bring them both together. And when you bring them both together, it actually presents you with a different picture of what of refugee 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 host relations in the making. There's there's things that are in the making. They're not established and static. They move, you know, and they, they, they web and flow. There's a dynamic to it. You know, like you and the two of us sitting in a cafe exchanging information about ourselves, you know, pontificating about how, how great we are, yeah. It's kind of meaningless, you know, uh, unless it's going to become a collaborative, something more collaborative. Let's say we wanted to start a research project together. You'd have to have a better sense of who I was. I'd have a better, better sense of who you, you folks are as researchers. It would develop over time, and it would be a research collaboration in the making, yeah? Well, it's a similar thing. You know, it's pre-arrival communication. is a refugee-host relation in the making, even before they arrive. And something that was said to us by a sponsor group was extremely telling. Uh, and gratifying to hear was that so we'd been talking to these people for a year you know and when they arrived and they sat in the house we thought okay well there's nothing else to be done they knew each other right we're all sitting in the living room drinking tea you know they think well we knew each other and it was like but when you spoke to other groups who hadn't had that pre-arrival communication suddenly people who you don't know are sitting in your living room right You've got to then establish that from that point forward while they're here. And before people have come, if they haven't had that pre-arrival communication, and I'm intuiting one of your next questions, <laughs> people who haven't had that, the, the, the opportunity to establish resettlement knowledge assets have been bombarded by resettlement information, which is something very different. And that creates issues they then have to rebuild they have to build that sense of trust while negotiating expectations based on 
information, resettlement information. Resettlement information is not a co-created knowledge asset. It comes from one side, but that side uh, has multiple uh, sources. It can be people chattering on Twitter, uh, on Facebook, it, saying things about what's going to happen to you when you come here, which happens a lot. You know, they're going to take your kids off you. Right? Don't smack your kids. They're going to take your kids off you. You know, things like that. You know, and oh, Canada's a really racist place. You know, they don't like Arabs here. All these things. What you we class as resettlement information? We want to neutralize it and turn it into category. It's not resettlement knowledge. Well, Chris, all this is fascinating, but uh, it seems to me that uh, the cases you described, we talk there about people who are strangers to each other. It was sponsored the stranger cases. And in our previous episode, actually, we were discussing the fact that many of the sponsorships in Canada are so-called linked sponsorships, where we talk about relatives sponsoring their relatives abroad or their friends abroad or their colleagues from the past who are still abroad in a displacement situation. So in these cases where relationships were already established, did you encounter such cases in your research? And what were, the, what were your findings there? Yes, we did. We did encounter that, and also I'm very privileged to um, have the opportunity to supervise some excellent graduate students who are doing lots of work in these these areas, and many of them have taken the status eligibilities framework and tried to apply it and applied it and developed it. The status eligibilities framework that we published, looking at different aspects. Yeah, diaspora. It's an interesting concept. People tend to automatically think solidarity with diaspora. because, And particularly in a place like Canada where multiculturalism is a constitutionally effective uh, program where people are thought of as belonging to particular ethnic groups, etc., etc. That's not necessarily the case, right? You know, and the, um, someone may or may not belong to a particular ethnic group and they may be linked through kinship to particular, uh, a particular ethnic group. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you have an automatic sense of understanding uh, between people coming and the people who are here already. But what it does do is it provide, does provide a shield in terms of things like experiencing uh, racism, marginalisation and exclusion, because people who have lived here from particular ethnic backgrounds have experienced that. They've worked out ways of negotiating it. Uh, they've developed strategies of, ha of being able to develop a successful life despite the facts that they've been thought of as being, or they've been racialized or ethnicized in particular ways. So what diasporic communities and sponsorship does do is it provides an umbrella where it enables folks to come to a place where there's an established framework that can shield them to a certain extent from those negative experiences. So that's one aspect of diasporic sponsorship of course ultimately anyone who comes even as part of diaspora wants to go out and make it on their own 
They want to develop their own lives. Yeah, not, they may think of themselves as belonging, having kinship, and it's really important. But they want to go out on their own. At that point, then they're still going to have to be a process of establishing some form of strategy for negotiating, being mistrusted. I've looked at mistrust and how refugees can be are objects of mistrust. And this brings us back to uh, the issue of refugeeness, the bogus, the, bo- the idea of the bogus refugee. <clears throat> so one of the aspects about of of being of refugeeness is this duality, which I call the the sort of the victim pariah framework, whereby in order to get refugee status, you have to, of course, have a well founded, well founded grounds for being given it. Well founded grounds based on experiences of persecution, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you have to prove that that your grounds for getting refugee status are well founded. Who judges whether or not your grounds are well founded? So if you look at who accepts and who decides who gets in as a refugee and who doesn't, it's receiving states. Receiving states decide who has a well-founded claim to being a refugee. Now, as soon as you say some people have a well-founded claim, what you're also saying is that some don't. And what you're also saying is that some might use it, might use refugee status to get in to society, uh, into our host society. And that's primarily, that's where the idea of the bogus asylum seek, the bogus refugee come. They're not really refugees, right? Uh, they're actually economic migrants coming, trying to use refugee status to get in. So you have this kind of duality where refugee status means that you have to prove that you're worthy of rescue, a victim worthy of rescue. And if you don't prove it, if in any way you slip out of that ability to prove it, it's quite easy for others to think of you as not really being a refugee, of being, you know, suspect. And that's the victim pariah duality that comes with refugeeness. Now, we found, for example, I have a, a graduate student uh, that I work with called Afsana Tabibi, who comes from, uh, she's Canadian, comes from an Afghan background, and she's been doing work on Hirati Afghan refugees who have lived, in, who came to Canada through private sponsorship 30 years ago, uh, some of whom were sponsored by family. What she's found that those aspects continue to exist even 30 years later, that victim pariah duality of refugeeness can very easily be reignited. And when it's reignited, it calls into question the dual identity that they have of Afghan Canadian. That dual identity that is the hallmark of a multicultural society like Canada. Syrian Canadian, Afghan Canadian, Iranian Canadian, whatever, can be called into question. Why? Well, we look at the idea of the Syrian refugee crisis. We've just completed a study looking at the experience of Syrian Canadian and Syrian American citizens who are not refugees, who were born and raised in Canada and America, looking at the impact of refugee reception on them. And what's really interesting is this. The Syrian refugee crisis creates a description of what it means to be Syrian. To be Syrian gets associated with refugee, gets associated with crisis. And what is that? 
we've just we've just discussed. It's a reduction of what it means to be Syrian to the refugee crisis. So what happens there is that that then has an impact on people who are who've lived here all their lives, who suddenly are being asked if they're refugees when they say, I come from a Syrian background or I come from an Afghan background, and it gets reignited. I said, well, it creates a sense of, potential sense of re-marginalisation of people who have even, who've lived here for 20 or 30 years, right? So diaspora is important. It creates uh, protective umbrellas against uh, particular experiences in Canadian society. But it's not a panacea because refugeeness is something that can continue way beyond the life of that initial, let's say, 12 months. Chris, I have one last question for you. And um, we're, yeah, just looking at our time, I would love it if um, you could give me very quickly, looking at this pre-arrival contact issue, but also the, the I think that the really interesting thing that came out of your discussion and the papers about this trust, like developing trust and why that's so important. With those considerations in mind, are there anything? Is there anything you'd like to say to policymakers who might be designing new sponsorship programs? Are there particular things that you think are key for this development of trust in new program design? I'm not sure I have a message for policymakers. I'm not. I'm not. A, I don't do policy work in that sense. I'm not, I'm not a policy-driven researcher. However. With this particular policy, as policymakers know, people who come or have been in conflict or have been faced persecution have real problems with trusting the institutions of the state. You know, I mean, much is made of, of state intervention within the West, and, you know, and of course there's a left right divide on where the state should lie in terms of interventions. To a certain extent, that's a luxury of living in somewhere like the West, right? the luxury to debate uh, state interventions. But in a situation where someone has come through displacement, uh, faced death, persecution at the hands of the state, yeah, or at the hands of state-based backed militias, institutions, state institutions and state players don't have a lot of trust. Authority doesn't have a lot of trust. So trust is crucial on multiple dimensions. And what we're talking about here within this is the embryonic emergence of trust relations between refugees and hosts. So that becomes really that, that becomes really important. Now, I'm not advocating for the establishment of a situation where people should trust state institutions. That would become a political statement on my part. Even if I believe it, I'm not going to advocate it as a, as a researcher, right? But what I can advocate for is a real understanding of how uh, relationships get built between people who, are, who gain refugee status and people who are in the societies in which they're, they're received, right, and how, that, how that, that works. Trust is not, a, again, it's not a panacea, but the great thing about the private sponsorship scheme is it shows how that can be a benefit and how it can be an asset. And so if I was designing a private sponsorship scheme now, I would place, I would um, take the knowledge that comes from th that scheme, uh, particularly with, with reference to pre-arrival communication, and I would create a systematised way of ensuring that 
private sponsors who want to do that can do it. And that there's a possibility of developing pre-arrival communication. So I, I advocated for, for example, your private sponsors do a lot of fundraising. And when you're putting your private sponsorship group together and you're developing your funding plan, um, that part of that funding plan gets allocated towards being able to finance that pre-arrival communication. That'll just be a, a practical, how are you going to do it? I mean, it's not an easy thing to achieve, right? It's, but it's ad hoc. And it's great that it's ad hoc. It comes from, a, this is a, a, a ground-level finding, right? It's not even a finding. It's, it's just that it happens. You mentioned it earlier. It happens. So, And it's, it's a boon. So because it's a boon and it has positive effects, then it should be galvanized, it should be celebrated, and should be made more prominent within the, the sort of the vista of sponsorship, right? So if you're saying, here's a policy, it's what you have to do as a sponsorship group, blah, 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 you should really look at pre-arrival communication. It's of great benefit. And I'll just give you one example. Going back to the kind of sheets example, I told you about the, the sponsor who said, what, kind of what color of sheets would you like? And he said, my daughter's like pink. Some sponsor groups, right? And this really blew me away. I thought this was amazing. Some sponsor groups went to great effort. So they provided photographs of different types of accommodation to show them. So, you know, these are this is, this is two apartments. Here's the photographs. Here's the two houses. You know, if you live in this house, if you live in this apartment, you're going to be next to these schools. These schools, for example, there's a Catholic school, there's a, a school. If you go to this house and you have this school, you're going to have greater access to English uh, ELS for your, you know, for kids. It has these types of supports for your kids, kind of thing, you know. And look at all, look at what's being conveyed there. All your social roles are being accommodated within that, right? Within just here's five different types of accommodation. Which one do you like? Right? I thought, that's amazing. You know, and like, mm, well, I've never lived in the apartment. I don't know. That and I'm not saying they're luxurious or they should be luxurious upon. We're not saying, you know, go overboard here. You know, it's just saying, but even just having the options or conveying to people that you've actually looked at this and considered it, considered it, in itself is asset building. Uh, some people took photographs of furniture shops and showed them furniture. Like, you know, so this. Do you like this type of furniture for your house? Or this type of furniture, right? Now that, to people on the outside listening, they'll think, oh, but they're refugees. You know, they're, they're, you know, there's a reduction when people think about refugees. They think they don't deserve, people don't deserve to have these options or deserve to even have these things placed. You know, they should be grateful for what they get, right? That's the kind of common sort of understanding of, of, of refuge. But one of the key elements of how people engage with what gets called integration is what they bring to that in terms of their own aspirations you know and their aspirations come from what they've experienced in the past so like if they've lived in particular house or they you know nobody aspires to have refugee status for the rest of their lives no one aspires to be thought of as having to prove myself as being a legitimate you know, recipient of refugees for the rest of their lives. They want to move beyond that. And these things, these options convey the possibilities. There are possibilities for you. They're not guaranteed. Yeah, but there are some possibilities. But just doing that, giving people, saying here are the options, it's recognition that 
you know, I recognise you. That you're, you're a dad. You're a mum. You're an engineer. You're a carpenter. You're a bricklayer. You know, I rec we recognise these things, and we want to provide pathways. It's not going to be the same. No one expects it to be the same as what it was. But there are pathways, familiarity, and how do you build familiarity for someone? You relate the new context to what they've already experienced and to things that they connect with. So for policymakers then, resettlement knowledge assets then is what should be promoted and advocated for. And I think you might find, because policymakers always have one eye on the purse or the, the finances, that it might actually save a little bit of cash on the way. Because, you know, I think one of your questions you said was, why does the information they get, what was the question? Yeah, the question was, yeah, like, why is the resettlement information that governments provide, why is that not knowledge asset? Ah, because it's not mutually, it's not co-created. It's not co-created, so it doesn't respond to the, it doesn't meet the disconnect between expectations and reality on both, on either side. You know, so it is a benefit. I mean, we didn't study that. We didn't do a comparison between information received from like embassies and and re -knowledge, uh, knowledge assets. But it came up. People made that point. You know, I did that. Some people thought it was great. The information they got from embassies was great. Others said, well, you know, we did this and it was, you know, this was great. We went to that, but this was fantastic, you know, talking to talking to sponsors. So there's a distinction there. Uh, resettlement information is one thing. It has a value. But resettlement knowledge is something that's co-created. And that's why it becomes an asset. Chris, I want to thank you so much for this very informative conversation. Well, thank you. For our listeners, I'm going to add to the description of the podcast some links to your articles. And for any policymakers, students, or other researchers interested in the topic, they will be able to get to know better your work. Thank you again. Thank you.